available on digital media, iTunes podcast, smartphone apps, and from the online website. This is Outlook, the talking newspaper for Coventry. Welcome to Outlook. My name is Peter Walters and this edition is being recorded on Wednesday, the 6th of December, 2023. Coming up in today's programme, uh, we're concluding the story of the Archers, a remarkable story which makes it now the world's longest running radio soap. Uh, we're talking Disney as well, uh, not just Walt, uh, but a little village in Lancashire which goes by the name of Norton Disney. Uh, we're getting quite Christmassy. John Julius Norwich's interpretation of the 12 days of Christmas. Uh, Elaine reading a, a, a story called A Visit from St. Nicholas. And also Dave going to a Frankfurt Christmas market. So there's plenty in there if you're starting to get in the mood. Uh, but first, we're going to hear the news read for you by me and Elaine. Outlook News. The Department of Work and Pensions cost of living payments that have helped millions of families are set to be scrapped. The £900 payments for people on certain benefits have been given to around 8 million people. <clears throat> but it has now emerged that this money, designed to help with bills amid rising costs caused by the inflation surge that followed the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is set to end shortly. A government minister has confirmed the decision. Tom Purstglove, DWP Minister of State for Disabled People, Health and Work, said the DWP had been assessing whether more support was needed. Now, Mims Davis, the Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the DWP, has answered the question. She said in a written response, there are currently no plans to extend the cost of living payments beyond the spring. Cost of living payments enabled us to target further support during the rising cost of living pressures. Delivering lump sum payments got support faster to those who needed it, reflecting our commitment to providing direct and timely relief to those who need it most. The rate of inflation has slowed and we have been able to uprate other benefits to reflect increased costs. This includes increasing benefits and the state pension by 10.1% in April 2023, in line with inflation. The Secretary of State has completed his annual statutory review of pensions and benefits and his decisions were announced to Parliament on November the 22nd. From April 2024, universal credit amounts will be uprated by 6.7%. The final payment will come in spring 2024, yet the government will still face pressure to continue the scheme. Coventry City Council says it will not have to declare bankruptcy next year if planned budget cuts go ahead. The council says this means locals will not face the possibility of even steeper tax rises and the effect on public services this could bring about. But a senior council officer said it's difficult to plan more than a year ahead and nigh on impossible to predict how things will look 18 months from now. And even if all the cuts are taken, the council faces large budget gaps of 13 and 14 million pounds at the start of the next two years. Details of the tough options put forward to save millions of pounds across council services were revealed by the councillor earlier this week. These include parking fee hikes, 
higher ticket prices for Godiva Festival, charging for green waste bin collections and turning off streetlights at night. In October, the council warned difficult decisions lay ahead to avoid needing to take the move in a year's time. That month, Councillor Richard Brown said the council could have faced effectively having to declare bankruptcy in 12 months without extra government funding. At the time, Councillor Brown also told the local democracy reporting service it would be fighting tooth and nail against it. But he said if nothing changed, the council would have to consider the move seriously. After the cuts on the table this year will be enough to stop the council having to issue a section 114 next year. Leader George, Councillor George Duggan said it will. He also reiterated why the move is something the council would want to avoid. If we do end up with 114, not only will we lose control, but others will come in. In some instances, there's been a 15% increase in council tax, he said. I know people will be unhappy about the fact that there will be a raise in council tax, he added. Finance manager Phil Helm said, If the past two years have taught us anything, it's that the world is very volatile at the moment. So being able to forecast even 18 months ahead is nigh on impossible. It really makes the job difficult to plan financially any further than 6 or 12 months ahead. Figures show the council faces an overspend of £11.5 million this year, which he says is mostly caused by outside factors and will likely continue in future if action on this is not taken. Scientists have warned that the new subvariant of the Pirola strain of COVID could make people ill over the Christmas period. Experts say they expect COVID levels to rise in the next couple of weeks, with thousands of people ill for Christmas, Boxing Day and the New Year. The new strain JN1, as reported in last week's Outlook News, first appeared in Luxembourg in August, before spreading to the US, the UK, France and other countries, while its parent was first detected in Denmark in July, with the first cases appearing in the UK in August. Researchers fear that JN1 will prove more infectious than previous variants because of a specific mutation. That, combined with people mixing more over the next few weeks thanks to parties and shopping, could lead to a Christmas Day spike. Professor of Innate Immunity at the University of Cambridge, Claire Bryant, said that although there isn't enough data to confirm anything yet, the changes could mean JN1 evades our immune systems more easily and replicates faster. She said the change in the spike protein will probably correlate to it being more infectious. And that's what's caused us the most problems so far, because you can't control something that's that infectious. The view was echoed by Professor Sheena Cruikshank, immunologist at the University of Manchester, who added that it could take longer to recover or cause more severe disease. Professor Cruikshank said that by inference, this should also mean vaccines work well against JM1. However, the low vaccination levels were more concerning. Now only the over-65s, care home residents, carers, health and social care workers and the clinically vulnerable can get booster jabs on the NHS. And out of those, only around 50% are being vaccinated, meaning general protection is quite low. So the moral is, 
Make sure you are vaccinated if you are in one of the above categories. More people are waiting longer to be seen at a Coventry Hospital's A&E than they should be because there aren't enough free beds, the meeting has heard. It comes as the City Council told us spending an entire day in the emergency department at University Hospital last month. But plans are in place to help people leave hospital faster when they're well enough, which the hospital says will reduce A&E waiting times. The the hospital is also planning to replace old equipment, which is slowing down blood tests, and now has two pharmacy-dispensing robots to speed up prescriptions. University Hospital Coventry and Warwickshire's trust performance on waiting times was discussed at a Coventry Council scrutiny meeting last week. The latest stats shared at the meeting show 60% of patients going to A&E at the hospital in Walsgrove over the last year were seen within four hours. This is lower than the national NHS target of 76% and the hospital trust's overall rate of 72%, which includes shorter waits at its urgent care centres in Rugby and Coventry. Gabrielle Harris, Chief Operating Officer at UHCW, told councillors, We know that we've got a lot more work to do. She added, We do deliver a four-hour performance in what we call our ambulatory care streams, So within our minor streams, within our urgent treatment centres, patients do get seen and treated within four hours. But where we struggle is in our children's emergency department and also our adult emergency major stream. Staffing changes and the complexity of cases account for delays at the children's department, which just sees under fives, she explained. For adults, the problem comes down to a lack of free beds, known as the level of occupancy within the hospital. Our adult stream is driven directly by the level of occupancy we have in the emergency department, said Miss Harris. Our occupancy in the emergency department is directly driven by the occupancy we have in the ward. She confirmed that around 98% of beds at the hospital are taken, a level that's higher than the 92% maximum recommended by the NHS. The Coventry Telegraph says that the BBC is on a mission to be the only show in town. It has taken the local out of local radio, drastically cutting the number of hours of locally produced shows you'll hear on BBC Coventry and Warwickshire, and intends to write more news online, directly competing with your local newspaper's website, Coventry Live which itself is currently battling with tech platforms like Google, Meta and Apple for a fair share of the value generated by the content created. Unlike Google, Meta, etc., the BBC's funding is guaranteed by the licence fee, meaning the British public is underwriting the biggest threat local journalism has ever faced. It is choosing to push that money towards local news websites, thereby making it increasingly difficult for proud independent news sites like this one to survive in the long term. None of us have asked for this and the effect on a free press will be catastrophic. Imagine a country where there is only one voice and that voice is connected to the state and which cannot, due to its need to be neutral, fight on your behalf. It sounds like it couldn't happen here, but if the BBC's plans are not stopped, that is the road we will be on. 
This is a publicly funded organization that is quickly establishing itself as the single biggest threat to the survival of local independent journalism in the UK. The BBC says it wants to be a good neighbour to local newspapers like the Coventry Telegraph. In reality, it has somehow become the neighbour from hell, a state-funded juggernaut on course to suffocate independent journalism in every city, town and village in the UK. If these plans are allowed to go ahead, they will be remembered as the point where the power of big tech and the BBC merge to crush the proud British tradition of free, diverse and independent media. Without advertising money, without readers buying papers, our ability to do this suffers. This is the behind-the-scenes battle that your local newspaper or website has been fighting for years with only you, the reader, as our support. The BBC doesn't have to worry about any of this, because it is funded by what amounts to a mandatory tax, a tax that will land you in court if you don't or can't pay it, with as many as £1,000 a week in that situation. The government is taking welcome steps to tackle the market abuses by Meta and Google through digital market digital markets bill which we hope will create a loving playing field between publishers and tech platforms now it is time to rein in the BBC as well to remind the BBC that it is at its best when it is not trying to compete with businesses that don't share its advantages and that if it wants to compete like a business then it should be willing to give those advantages up the aid within Gaza is scarce, with many innocent civilians from young children and women suffering from the Israel-Hamas war. But in Coventry, a group of volunteers took a journey from the city to Istanbul, delivering eight ambulances to help the people of Gaza. Volunteers from Coventry, along with 30 other volunteers from Muslims in Need across the UK, departed from Builders Trade Centre in Coventry to Istanbul which took five days to deliver the aid for guards of civilians suffering in the Israel-Hamas conflict. Owner of Builders Trade Centre in Folsil, Omar Farouk Shah, alongside the volunteers, travelled 2,500 miles as part of a convoy to deliver the ambulances. They saw the need for help was more crucial than ever before, with hospitals within Gaza being targeted. So the group travelled across seven countries over five days, from Dover to Calais, then Belgium into Germany, then Austria, Hungary, Romania and Bulgaria, before making the final destination to the Turkey delivery point. Omar said, The volunteers came up with the idea that aid and ambulances were required in this much-needed time in Gaza. So we had volunteers from Manchester, Birmingham and Coventry who got together to purchase the vehicles and had them prepared. We took them to local garages who did the local repair work and got them ready for driving the long journey. Then at the same time we started to raise money and awareness of the cause to contribute towards aid and medical equipment to be purchased and sent in Gaza. Omar and his brother set up the Give, right, Give Bright page in honour of the Muslims in Need charity. It's a non-profit volunteer group that provides vital and life-saving humanitarian aid globally. The page currently has raised over £250,000, 
The brothers have also raised an additional 65,000, with excess funds going directly to the most needy projects in Gaza. The ambulances got delivered to Turkey on November the 25th, which is now getting clearance to be shipped into Egypt and via the border into Gaza. Now Omar's focus will be providing medical aid, food aid and other necessities. Taps could stop flowing according to new research which suggests the UK is facing a shortfall of 200 million litres of water by 2038. New analysis shows that the UK's water demand is set to outstrip supply which will leave the nation short of the equivalent of more than a billion cups of tea. The projected shortfall will be reality within 15 years with cross-party think tank demos developing a report supported by Affinity Water outlining eight policy recommendations and collective action needed to keep, <coughs> to keep Britain's taps flowing. Affinity Water is calling on the public to sign a change.org petition asking UK political parties to incorporate their recommendations developed in consultation with government, policymakers, academia, home buildings, climate experts and the water industry into their upcoming manifestos. These include resurrecting the post of Minister for Water, creating a National Water Council and implanting better training for plumbers and installers to reduce leaks. It also includes compulsory water meters for all households and providing a range of tariffs which determine the price consumers pay based on usage. Keith Haslett, Affinity Water CEO, said, As the UK's largest water-only company, we and the wider water industry have a responsibility to protect the UK's water supply and help customers reduce their water consumption. While the UK is deemed to be a nation that sees, sees a lot of rain, research conducted by Demos and Affinity Water found there is public concern towards the impact climate change will have on the UK's water supply. It has been confirmed that whilst February 2020 was the wettest on record, July 2022 was the driest for almost 70 years. Plans have been put forward for a new cycleway down Falls Hill Road after people said there were too many cars in the area. The cycle track would be fully separate from the pavement and the road and go from the canal basin to the junction at Broad Street. It's part of a £4.5 million project to improve the road with new crossings for cyclists and walkers and bus stops that are accessible. Walkers and cyclists are also set to get priority over cars wanting to join the road from side streets so they can move freely along the road. Coventry Council's website said the changes will help make Folesville an even better place to live, work and visit. A fifth of traffic going down the road doesn't stop in the area, instead using it as a cut through to the A444, according to the Council's traffic surveys. As well as a new council lane, the council is planning some cycle storage on the road, which has asked people to provide feedback. A total of £4.5 million of funding for the scheme was announced earlier this year and comes from the government via the West Midlands Combined Authority. 
The run-up to Christmas can prove to be a very difficult time for families struggling to cope with the cost of living crisis. Over the past couple of weeks there have been, from different food banks and social supermarkets that are helping community members navigate the problem. At Canley Community Centre they hold a social supermarket every Friday from 12 till 1. People can pay £5 a week for £20 worth of shopping that will last them the week. The social supermarket is in partnership with Coventry Food Network which exists to support charities in Coventry and surrounding areas to tackle food poverty. The supermarket was built during the COVID-19 lockdown after people in the community were going hungry due to being made redundant. Julie Hughes, food coordinator at the centre, said they feed between 130 and 140 households a week. At the centre, many volunteers have been through their own challenges, but now want to give back to people in the community who are struggling. The social supermarket receives heartwarming donations from local businesses, such as Aubrey Allen Butchers in Leamington Spa, and bigger brands such as Every. The Pogues and Kirsty McCall's fairy tale of New York is on its way to reaching top of the charts this Christmas as fans rally together following frontman Shane McGowan's death. The Irish songwriter passed away on November the 30th, aged 65, with many calling for the festive tune to become number one this season. In a joint statement, McGowan's father Morris, sister Siobhan and wife Victoria May Clark announced the news of the star's passing. They said, it's with the deepest sorrow and heaviest of hearts that we announce the passing of Shane McGowan. Shane died peacefully at 3am this morning, 30th of November 2023, with his wife Victoria and family by his side. Prayers and the last rites were read, which gave comfort to his family. McGowan's wife confirmed that the singer died from pneumonia after battling a devastating brain swelling condition. Despite Fairy Tale of New York being known to many as a Christmas classic and typically re-entering the top ten every Christmas, it has never reached top of the official in singles chart. After it was first released in 1982, the track peaked at number two, with the Pet Shop Boys always on my mind, nabbing the top spot. Now, fans are joining forces in hopes of making Fairy Tale of New York Christmas number one this year in honour. Fans are also joined by Victoria herself, who is among those calling for the track to finally claim the coveted Christmas number one title in a few weeks' time. Victoria says she's very much in favour of the song securing number one. It would be nice, wouldn't it, she added. It should be the Christmas number one. It absolutely should. Christmas charity Tractor Parade organisers say the whole of Coventry will hear us when the procession hits the city next weekend. This Saturday, December the 9th, we'll see parts of the city welcome a cavalcade of tractors kitted out in festive decorations. It will be a big moment for the annual event, said Charles Goadby, a member of the Sheepy Ploughing Association Christmas Tractor Run. He said that the procession is likely to bring a lane of the city's ring road to a standstill. We thought, actually, from Bedworth, it's just a straight road into Coventry, round the ring road, and it's a straight road out, so why not? <laughs> 
It is a pretty big statement going round the ring road, and we think we will probably be filling that ring road in one lane all of the way round. We have been joking about the noise, that the whole of Coventry will hear it, he said, that he has already been contacted by a school and community centre in Foleshill, who plan to make the passing of the parade an event and have a place where people can stand to watch as they pass by. On the evening itself, the procession will start in Grendon and then head through parts of Nuneaton before travelling through Arley towards Corley and then Kersley. The parade will then head along the B4909 through Ash Green, Holbrooks and around the Ring Road before heading towards Exhall, Bedworth and then on to Nuneaton. The farmers who take part in the parade not only take pride in spreading festive cheer, but also raising money for good causes. Outlook News Thanks to Elaine for doing the news, as she does every week. Um, a little bit there, but um, announcements now, and uh, we're looking at the lighting up times for this week, which is sunrise at 7.58 a.m., sunset at 3.54 p.m., hardly seems worth getting up, is it? Um, but first of all, but rather next, I should say, here's Hugh with news from the Resource Centre. Thank you very much, Pete. You're absolutely right. It does hardly seem yeah. worth getting up. That's, uh, that's dreadful, isn't it? Anyway, uh, so we had the winter warmer last uh, weekend, uh, and although the footfall wasn't superbly huge, actually we did really rather well. Um, we did um, £1,093. Actually, that figure's gone up a bit um, in the last couple of days. Um, one of the uh, so thank you everybody who attended, and uh, really appreciate uh, your support. Um, one of the things that we were doing there was a Christmas raffle, um, and actually the Christmas raffle is ongoing, and it's ongoing for a uh, until uh, next Monday. So uh, if you're getting this on um, on Friday or Saturday, then uh, you need to get down to the centre quick and get uh, get your raffle tickets, which is £2. But the hamper we've got on offer is absolutely fantastic. Um, it's a really nice, uh, really nice Christmas present prize. And actually, unusually, the actual wicker basket hamper thing is included. Um, <laughs> so uh, it's a great, uh, really nice prize. So um, uh, if you want to be in with a chance of winning the Christmas raffle, uh, please uh, stop by at the centre and pay your £2 and get your tickets. Um, next Tuesday, uh, we have the theatre trip uh, going to um, the, uh, see Arsenic and Old Lace at the Criterion Theatre. Uh, there are no more tickets left for it, so it's uh, pretty much a sellout production. So uh, if uh, if you wanted to go, um, well, give us a call. You know, somebody may pull out, but uh, you, you, you know, we're 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 pretty much uh, flap on that one at the moment. Um, usual thing will apply. Uh, uh, meet here for five o'clock. We'll go down to the resource centre. Not resource centre. We're at the resource centre. Go down to the theatre uh, for a touch tour. Uh, come back up here for fish and chips, and then back down to the theatre again in the evening. Uh, so. Uh, that's going to be a whole bunch of fun. Um, uh, we 
I've got some little advanced notice uh, of a, an event that's happening in March, so the 16th of March. Um, the Heart of England Co-op Concert Orchestra, or HOECO, uh, are uh, going to be doing a concert uh, on our behalf um, at the uh, Bethel Evangelical Church at Spon End. And it's going to be quite quite a big thing, actually, because Ian Lochlin, who's uh, renowned as the uh, panto dame at the Belgrade, has been doing it since... Noah was in uh, nappies, um, really. Uh, he's uh, he's going to be uh, doing some narration. I think uh, they're trying to do... I think they're going to be doing Peter and the Wolf um, uh, with uh, Ian Lachlan narrating. So it's going to be a really great event, I think. Anyway, it's going to be uh, on behalf of us. So that's Saturday, the 16th of March. Obviously, I will be uh, letting you know about that much uh, closer to the date. Uh, but if you fancy going and taking part in that it's a Saturday um, then uh, put a note in your diary and um, it should be a, a lot of uh, a lot of fun as well um, going to remind you about our closing Christmas uh, closing hours uh, hours I'm really not with it today it's been a hell of a day <laughs> I've had burglar alarms, fire alarms and floods to deal with today. So, you know, just the life of a busy chief exec. There we are. Uh, but so, um, uh, what was I talking about? Uh, Oh, closing. closing times, yeah, yeah. Closing for, for Christmas, there we are. Yeah. Um, so uh, we will be uh, closing on the 22nd of December, which is uh, the Friday uh, before Christmas, and uh, we will remain closed thereafter until the 2nd of January, which is a Tuesday, and uh, we'll be opening at 9 o'clock. So all the uh, Tuesday groups on that day will run as normal, um, we hope. So, so that's that. Um, of course, next week uh, we have uh, our darling Rosie's funeral on the Thursday, the 14th of December. The centre will be closed that day. There will be no groups going on. Um, uh, I've asked you before, if you want to go to the uh, funeral and you would struggle to get there um, otherwise, please do let us know and we'll arrange transport. Um, a number of people have. As it happens, we're not yet really anywhere close to the limit of um, people who uh, will need the bus. So we've still got more capacity on the buses and everything. So if you want to come uh, to the funeral, would otherwise struggle do give us a call, uh, call Carol or Heather on reception and uh, we'll put you on the list and by hook or by crook we will get you there. Uh, the funeral starts at 11.30 and it's at St John Fisher uh, Church in uh, Wyken. It's on uh, Tiverton Road in Wyken. Uh, that will last for at least an hour uh, and then uh, there's an internment private family interment um, before everybody goes on to the wake afterwards. Now, obviously, uh, people can go straight from the church to the Jaguar Social Club in Alsley, uh, where the wake is taking place. And uh, so the bar will be open, but there will be no food or anything, or, you know, the things will not, the celebration of life as it is will not uh, start until, obviously, the family is there as well. Uh, we're going to be taking part in that as a charity uh, quite significantly. Uh, we have... Um, uh, 
we have people from uh, from the music group who are going to be performing. Uh, we've got um, items from the creative writing group and the craft club are doing stuff as well. So, you know, and and I'll be talking and you know, and it really will be a proper celebration of Rosie's wonderful wonderful life. So, um, please do uh, if you want to, please do come to that. Um, I mentioned last week, but I'll just remind you that we had we have a, a new bit of kit in stock, which is um, um, a 12-inch Smartlux XL uh, video magnifier uh, from um, Eschenbach, which is a really good, um, very large screen, uh, like CCTV reader, digital magnifier, really. Um, and uh, so if you'd like to have a look at that, uh, we're selling it for £800. If you tried to buy it yourself uh, from somewhere else, it would be uh, £1,500. So uh, definitely, if you're in the market for a bit of kit, certainly as uh, Christmas is approaching and you have extremely generous relatives, um, then uh, this might be a piece of kit for you. Um, and finally... Um, uh, many of you, well, some of you may know Michael Mogan. He's certainly a, a, a bit of a Coventry uh, personality, uh, fundraiser, been involved in quite a lot of charities. And he's local. And he's local to, Co to Earlston, definitely. Uh, now, he's got a, t a couple of uh, lovely girls, Hattie and Alice, uh, who um, a few weeks ago decided to, they wanted to promote the charity shops of Earlston. And I'm very pleased to say that uh, one of the charity shops they chose uh, was ours. And they've uh, created a video that is now on uh, YouTube. The, the shtick of the video is that they're trying to find uh, uh, the best um, uh, the best outfit for, for their dad and uh, and um, <laughs> uncle, I think it is, uh, and from the charity shops, uh, what they've got on and and. Uh, but it's great. I mean, it really is a nice little tour of uh, of the Earlston charity shops, and we've got you know pretty good exposure of the uh, resource centre charity shop. So please check it out. Um, it's on Facebook uh, on our page. So if you want to go and have a look at it, you can uh, look at it on on our Facebook page. You can share it as well. If you share it, actually, there might be a bit of a donation coming our way, uh, as many shares as possible, which would be absolutely wonderful. Um, uh, Yes, or you can find it directly on YouTube. Um, just look for um, Earlson Charity Shops and um, I'm sure the video will come up. So, uh, it's very entertaining. It's only about, what, five minutes long. But, they, you know, the girls, you know, they, they, oh. they got the idea together themselves. Mm, particularly impressive is the age of the girls. Yes. They're, what are they, eight, ten, something like that? Yeah. They could be, yes, I think that they're yeah. down at Earlston Primary, right, yeah. so they're still primary school. Still primary. It is, um, and they're really, I mean, they, you know, they yeah. present, you know, so beautifully on the, uh, on the, on the video and explain what they're doing and what's going on. So even if you can't see the images particularly well, you know, you do know exactly what's going on. So uh, it's great. Definitely worth checking out. Um, and for, speaking of checking out, that's me. I'm checking out too. Thank you, Hugh. It may be near Christmas, but there's still plenty of sport to report. So Sarah's here with the last week's roundup. Outlook Sport. Well, hello there, and welcome to this week's sport. And a big shout out to all the lovely people, including Robert, who I met at the Winter Warmer on Saturday. And my gosh, that Baileys coffee went down very well. 
Right, on with the sport. Now, I told you last week that we got two women's teams in the third round of the FA Cup, and I tell you who they've drawn. Well, Rugby Borough have a home fixture with Sheffield United. Rugby are in the third tier, Division 1. Sheffield United are in the Championship, the second tier. Meanwhile, the surprise team of the draw, Camden Court Ladies, will host Burnley of the third tier, so the same tier as rugby. My gosh, I bet there are loads of people in Burnley googling, where the heck is Camden? Anyway, hopefully they'll know and won't want to come back after the match. Right. Staying with women's football, it was the Nations Cup. The final two rounds of the qualifying sort of round robin. Well, the one match has been played. The one match will be played on Tuesday. I'm recording on Monday. Now, this was the match against Holland, which England went into needing to win in order to stand a chance of qualifying Great Britain for the Olympics next year. However, it all began dreadfully badly and Holland were 2-0 up by half-time. However, mm-hmm, bit by bit, England clawed their way back and included a stoppage time goal to run out winners 3-2 which makes the final qualifying match against Belgium, which, as I say, is tomorrow, all the more important. And again, another must win. Now, have you heard of Mary Ertz? You haven't? Well, I'll give you a clue. She's the Manchester United and England goalkeeper. And the World Women's Footballer of the Year. Now that's particularly bittersweet because at the time of the World Cup, the clothing manufacturers refused to make replica shirts for Mary Ertz. They said, well, who's going to want a goalie shirt? Well, they did relent in the end and I bet those shirts are sure flying off the shelves now. Now, carrying on down the divisions, as I tend to do, last week, midweek, Coventry City played Plymouth Argyle. And I'm pleased to say that City ran out 1-0 winners, but to be truthful, it left a bit of a bitter taste in the mouths of us football purists because there was photographic evidence that clearly showed that the ball had gone out during, you know, the build-up to the goal. So it should have been whistle-blown and a goal kick to, to Plymouth. But hey-ho, three points in the bag. And thank heavens we haven't got VAR, video-assisted referee, yet in the championship. But I fear it will be coming. Now, on Saturday... Coventry travelled away to Ipswich to play Ipswich Town. Now, let me just put that into context. 
Ipswich were promoted last season from Division 1. But this year they have been the one of the outstanding teams of the championship and are currently on a seven home match winning streak. Well, for seven, make that now eight. Again, just like England, Coventry were 2-0 down by half-time. And things got worse for Coventry when Matthew Godden missed a penalty which he skied over the bar. But then on the very last kick of the match, I think it was an own goal scored. But hey-ho, we came out at the end of a 2-1 defeat. But 2-1 is better than 2-0. Or it might be at the end of the season when you're counting goal difference. Now down one more division. Rugby Borough women took on Chatham back in the league at home and won 2-1. So well done ladies. That sets you up well for next week's cup match. Moving down quite a lot of leagues to the Southern Premier League. Nuneaton Borough were due to play at home, but as you know, they haven't got a home ground at the moment because of the dispute. Well, <laughs> so they rescheduled with their opponents, Leighton, but they needn't to bother because it was postponed anyway due to a frozen bitch. But the big news for Nuneaton Borough is that they have got a home for their FA Trophy third round match. None less than the Coventry Building Society Arena, formerly known as the Rico, where Coventry City normally play on a Saturday. Apparently, an agreement has been reached between the two clubs and I suspect Fraser Group as the owners. So Nuneaton are getting the ground free. So if you fancy going along to support the local lads, the match is on Saturday at 3pm and home supporters will be housed in the West Stand, which I think is the Long Stand, backing onto the railway line. And you can go in via turnstiles 44 to 45. But I'm afraid I don't have a ticket price for that. But I bet it's not, shall we say, too exorbitant. Stratford beat Coville 2-1 at home. And Leamington were winners away at Hitchin Town. So... A very mixed bag, really, for our footballing teams. Unlike Coventry rugby team, who entertained Hartlebury Uni University at Butts Park and came out the wrong side of a 29-47 scoreline. Oh, well, lads, you can't win every match. And finally, before I go on to talking about something else very quickly, 
During the match against Plymouth, at one stage, there were three players with the surname Wright on the pitch. Cue the CWR commentators to make the phrase, Well, if two wrongs make a right, what do three rights make? Well, I can tell you this, they make it still right. But there wasn't a player on the pitch called still right. Now, leaving footballs and rugby behind, it's nearly time for that time of year when Sarah turns off her mobile and all her devices that go ping and settles down in front of the television. It's coming! Sports Personality of the Year, I mean. This year's programme will be on Tuesday, December the 19th, from 7 till 9 on BBC One. Presented by Gary Lineker, Alex Scott, Claire Balding and Gabby Logan. And I'm very pleased to see Claire there. Now what's really remarkable is, if I said to you, well how long do you think sports personality has been on for? How many years? You'd probably say, well, 25. Perhaps you'd remember that Princess Anne won and say, well, perhaps 50 years? Well, no. This year it celebrates its platinum anniversary. That is 70 years. And to put that in context, when it was first hosted, Winston Churchill was Prime Minister and Doris Day was Top of the Pops. Well, things have certainly moved on. Now, this year there will be eight categories, as there have been for quite a few years now. Those being the ultimate sports personality of the year, man or woman, they don't divide. World sports personality of the year. The Hellison Rollison Award for achievement out of adversity. The Young Sports Personality of the Year, The Unsung Hero, The Coach of the Year, and The Team of the Year. And then finally, the Lifetime Achievement Award. Now, they're due to announce who is on the shortlist for the main award shortly. I mean, I'd like to see Katerina Johnson-Thompson win, but she won't because she's from athletics, which is a minority sport. But apparently the bookies' favourite already is Ben Stokes. And yeah, I can go with that because she's done a lot for cricket and I mean to improve the public persona of cricket. The team of the year is going to be an interesting one. I mean, I'm not even going to mention Manchester City. I'm a United lass. Um, But, you know, we've got the England Lionesses, um, runners-up in the World Cup, and, of course, the mighty Ryder Cup team at golf who overturned that thrashing we had last time out in America. 
Now, the international sports person I would like to see go to Simone Biles. You know, the gymnast I've raved about for a long, 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 long time. And the lifetime achievement, that's a difficult one. But I would like to see it go to Mo Farah. I mean, Mo has done such a lot for athletics in his adopted country of Great Britain. And he's just sort of hung his running spikes up and disappeared. And I think he would be a real worthy winner. But I'll be back next week when hopefully they will have announced the shortlist and I'll be able to tell you more about it. And that has been your sport. Bye. So, who was your sports personality of the year? And while you ponder that, here's Dave with your postbag. This is Postbag. Hello there, we begin your postbag this week with kind thoughts from Graham Whale to the family of Rosie Brady. I really am sorry to hear about the death of Rosie Brady. It doesn't seem that long since I was congratulating her on her retirement. Uh, I know she's been an outstanding support to the Resource Centre over the years. I didn't realise she was ill because I don't come across her on a daily basis. I'm deeply surprised that uh, she's actually passed away, as I say, so soon after the start of retirement. And I would like to offer my condolences to her family. Thank you, Graham. And if you have any thoughts about Rosie Brady, please send them into postbag. And Christine is contacting Hugh again about the poor quality of the postbag recordings with the new phone system. Well, I hope you can hear this phone message from Bob Syme, answering my question about how you break in horses. Hello, this is Bob Syme for Outlook. A few weeks ago, you asked me, Dave, about breaking horses in after Wendy had told you about her horses, and I told you about my three, Ricky, Diamond and Rennie. Well... All horses are different, they're different temperaments, but very briefly I will tell you how I broke Diamond in when I got him back from Trimnall's when they told me he was unrideable. I walked in there, that's from Sandpits Lane near Nightingale's Farm, which is now the Beechwood Hotel, and I kept my horses in the, uh, which is now Cardinal Newman School, those were all big fields there, that's where I kept two of my horses there. So I walked into Trimrose on past the Bull and Butcher calling more than the red line, then onto the Maryland Road, about two and a half miles on along the Maryland Road, and on the right was Trimrose. I don't think it's still there, still going up, no idea. It's gone going back quite a number of years. So that was a, a head collar and a small uh, rope I had died, but he was perfect to walk along. Don't forget, he was a stallion then, and I, went, and I couldn't do anything with him, so I fetched him back, walked him all the way back, and uh, I had him castrated to become a gelded, because he kept jumping the fields and everything. He was a nightmare. I thought, right, I came him down a bit. So what you do is 
as I say, they're all different temperaments, but this is this is Diamond. I named him Diamond because he had a small white star on his uh, forelock on his forehead, and he was dark brown horse, and so I named it, that's why I named him Diamond. He's well known, actually, in the Kersley and Coventry, the Longley Corley area, how fast he was. So you just get used to your horse. If it's your own horse, then you've got more time to spend with him. But brushing him and feeding him and he gets to know you so you walk him round with a head collar on I had a leather head collar on when I was taking him out all done in the field this was when I'd been taking him out out of stables or whatever you walk him all round and pat him and brush him and comb him with, so he gets to know you then you uh, put a bridle on him after a few times you've done this Keep the head colour on, but just the bridle, no reins, just so he gets used to the bit in his mouth. The bits that I use for egg but snaffle, that's what they're called. Bits, they're the most common bits. You do that and start lunging him. You put a lunging rope on him in about a 60 foot circle, and you hold the rope, goes through the head colour, loop on the head colour, and get him walking round, and then eventually trotting him round. If you're on your own, you ride and had a crop. So I kept banging the floor with the croppers and he'd, he'd trot round in a big circle. And then pull him into you and pat him and give him a treat. You, it's repetition. You keep doing this for quite a few times. Then eventually get a, a saddle blanket, put the saddle blanket on your arm and let it go over his back and then just drop the saddle on him and swing the girth so that you can do the girth strap up. So don't forget this is the first time he's ever had a, a saddle on him. No stirrups, take the stirrups off, you just want the saddle. And do exactly the same thing, lunging him with the saddle on him and the bridle on him with no reins. You don't need the reins on him. Do this quite a few times. Take the saddle on and off so he gets used to having the saddle on him. Then, once you're satisfied with that, if you've got someone else to help you, so one either side, still with the head collar on, put the reins back on, put the stirrups back on him, and they will hold him with a, quite close to the head collar, and with about a 10 foot rope, loop through so if he bolts, you, you keep hold of one part of the road and it'll just come straight through so he's loose. He won't drag you about. So <laughs> this is the time now. Put weight on on his saddles. You can have, where the stirrups go, put a barrier either side if you want. Some people do, so I didn't. But that some people do with some uh, soil in them. Just to weight it down so the horse gets used to having a weight on his back. So it's either side. That's what a lot of people do, but I didn't. So once you've got the saddle and the bridle up, going round and lunging him round in circles again, you want someone to hold it, hold the horse on the short rope near the head collar, and put the saddle and the stirrups back on, and the reins on the horse. I'm only telling you very briefly what to do, how I did it. So then you come and the test comes so put your weight on him and just get on him on the saddle if they're holding him preferably one either side of his head collar 
and see how he reacts. He'll book it and read a bit, but don't worry about that. If you've got your reins crossed over enough, so you're holding in between both hands, the loop in between your hands over the reins will fall onto his neck and he won't throw you over his head. You always do this when you're learning to ride as well. Don't ever hold the saddle or the mane, otherwise you'll come off. And then it's up to you. Keep repeating this. It takes about a month, maybe six weeks, till you're satisfied with the horse. And that's very briefly how you break horses in. Okay. All the best. Upside. Thank you, Bob. And now here's a message for computer tutor John England, who's missing his friend, Julia. His report is entitled, Stood Up Again. Every Friday around 530 my friend Julia comes round and we type a letter to postbag. Today she made an excuse and left me on my own. Well, actually she's not well, so it's not really an excuse. But I'm left with nothing to do. Now everybody knows that I'm very good at doing nothing. My dad always said that I was a good for nothing. And it was one of the very few things that he got right. So I thought to myself... I could live up to my reputation and do nothing. But I then thought to myself, why not write a letter myself? After all, there'll be a Julia-sized hole in this week's postbag, so why not fill it in? So that was my cunning plan. But what could I write about? My life is not very exciting. I go to the resource centre on Mondays and Thursdays for the computers, and just recently I've started going to the creative writing group on Monday afternoons. I work with my friend Edwina on Mondays, and we've been working on writing about hailstones and tragedies. But we've had no hailstones recently, and I can't send a tragedy into postbag. I've just realised my friend Edwina has gone to Oxfordshire this weekend, so I've been stood up by both my friends. So there's a tragedy for you. I never thought of that. Now I've written a tragedy. Roll over, Macbeth. So, having reduced postbaggers to melancholia, what should I do now? Well, I suppose I should try to make you laugh. But you know what they say. Time flies like an arrow. Fruit flies like a banana. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. I hope Julia will be back next week. Thank you, John, ever so much. And also, Julia, for your reports. And uh, fortunately, we've got Edwina here with a tip to help you eat your food better. Hi, everybody. Today, it is about eating. I'm sure you've all got a good appetite. One of our difficulties when we can't see is keeping the food on the plate. I've now come up with an idea which I've just started to use is buying the plates that are like dishes with curved edges. They're the same size of a plate more or less but with the curved edge. It means now that if I have a dinner with gravy etc I can still scoop up every bit of my meal and the gravy anything it doesn't go off the edge of the plate 
the curve is there. So it's worth thinking about if you are finding it more difficult to see the edge of your plate. That always may ways and mean to help each other. Take care, everybody. Bye. Well, thank you, Edwina, for yet another useful tip. And for your messages this week, please send in your Christmas messages for our festive edition of Outlook. Okay, bye for now. This is Outlook. You can contact Postbag. Our website is www.talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Our email address is postbag at talkingnewspaper.org.uk. Join in the discussion on Postbag. Your Postbag for this week is Dave. Now I'm pleased to welcome Stella back with another of her reviews of the month, and this time, of course, it's December. What kind of December person are you? I belong to the category B class, one of those who can't believe when it's actually the first, because they meant to buy advent calendars for their friends' children. So they scurry around the local shops, dredging through leftovers, then belt over to see the kids and watch them open the first window before bedtime. Category A people, of course, bought their advent offerings way back in the January sales. I used to work with a supreme example, really nice in spite of her A status, who spent months embroidering a perpetual advent calendar with exquisite little designs for each day. Thing of beauty it was, which inspired me to have a go at making my own cross-stitch Christmas cards in the first year of my early retirement not that easy to raise your game to an A rating, I was too ambitious and managed to complete only two cards, one of which arrived at its destination on the 28th. One bonus was that the friends who received them said they would bring them out every year along with the usual decorations and that in future I could cross them off my Christmas card list. A people write and stamp all their cards by the end of November. They do not, like B people, enclose little notes saying, must rush now, we'll write in the new year, but produce a long, amusing letter chronicling the events of the last year, which they photocopy for inclusion where appropriate. Carefully chosen and imaginative gifts, expertly wrapped in designer paper with matching labels, are arranged under their tree and they have not forgotten to post lightweight presents to relatives in Australia before the dreaded closing date. Their homemade puddings and cakes are stored away, their freezers bold with every kind of delicacy. Smugly they survey frantic bee persons racing round the shops during that last weekend, and cannot refrain from commenting that they've just got to pick up a few perishables, salad and fruit, before the big day. Seriously, though, a happy medium is probably the answer. Not to have Christmas sewn up like a military operation, but to allow a bit of planning time so that the preparations might actually be enjoyable, free from nail-biting anxiety. Mind you, I do have a sneaking admiration for that rare, unflappable bee person who strolls out on Christmas Eve each year and manages to buy great presents for everyone. 
It should be the most festive of days to shop, but annoyingly some retailers will by that time have dismantled their dazzling Christmas displays and be advertising sale bargains, a symptom of the commercialism which many feel ruins the spiritual quality of this most special of festivals. For some it can prove the most difficult time. Lonely people may dread the long quiet days, imagining that everyone else is part of some wonderful family scene and forgetting that relationships can often become somewhat strained under the pressures of enforced togetherness. Those who are recently bereaved feel like going into hibernation. My own brother died in a road accident at the end of December long ago. He was only 18 and of course Christmas has always been tinged with sadness since. But in spite of all its drawbacks, the season has never quite lost its appeal for me. One December I was staying with a friend in London, and on Christmas Eve we set off in the car for Coventry. Traffic was heavy and slow on the first part of the journey, and we switched on the radio, which was broadcasting the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols from King's College, Cambridge. As we listened, flakes of snow began to fall lending everything an air of enchantment, which made us both recall the Christmases of our childhood. One year, I must have been about six, and trying not to know that Santa was really mum and dad, I determined to keep awake and see him come. If I peered very hard into the night sky, I could almost make out the shape of a reindeer, and if I strained my ears, I could swear I heard sleigh bells. So setting aside crash materialism, feelings of loss and isolation and the stresses of organisation, Christmas can still in many ways weave its magic for us, if we hold fast onto our happy memories and onto its message of giving and receiving, peace and reconciliation, which illumine the dark short days of late December. Last week, Sue started telling us about the remarkable way that the archers had captured the nation's imagination for 70 years to become the world's longest-running radio soap after 2,000 episodes and 5 million listeners, and still remaining relevant. Sue now concludes that story. So, where do all these characters come from? The Linda Snells, the Walter Gabriels, and the Eddie Grundys. Take, for example, Elizabeth Pargeter, nay Archer, owner of Lock, Lower Loxley Hall, upper-class entrepreneur and widowed mother of twins. The death of her husband Nigel, he fell off the roof in 2011, caused nationwide horror, as he'd been part of the show for 27 years. Elizabeth once had a disastrous fling with a fraudster and later an abortion though now she's happily with Vince Casey. So where did she spring from? In his memoir, Harvey reveals how a teenage crush on a girl he calls Paula inspired Elizabeth's character 25 years later. Working a Saturday job as a greengrocer's delivery boy, young Harvey arrived outside a posh house and a young woman opened the door. She had deep blue eyes and her blonde hair pulled back in a ponytail, he remembers. Her dazzling smile robbed me of the power of speech. But 
but the social gulf between them seemed unbridgeable. He was a council house boy, she belonged to the local tennis club. And while our lives touched, our bodies didn't, he writes regretfully. So they went their separate ways, though Harvey adds, at a lonely time in my life she made me feel good about myself. For that I'll always love her. Much later, tasked with bringing to life one of the archer's silent characters, we know their names but never hear their voices, he remembered Paula, and thus Elizabeth, played by actress Alison Dowling, went on to become a central character. The Archers has been at the heart of British life for decades, and all the momentous events and changes of our time have found a place in the scripts. As an institution, it's had its weak points. For the first twenty years it was written, produced and directed entirely by men. If they could have got away with it, they'd probably have found a male actor to play Doris Archer, jokes Harvey. By the early 1970s, the BBC considered axing the programme because it had gone stale and its audience was beginning to slide. But then came producer William Smethurst, who by introducing more comic storylines, according to radio critic Gillian Reynolds, turned the archers into a cult. At its heart, of course, it's a story about farmers and farming, and that's how Harvey found himself on the show. After school, he went to Bangor University to study agriculture, working on a farm during the holidays. After a day heaving hay bales about, I'd climb up on top of the load for the ride back to the barn, he recalls. The regular workers thought I was nuts. But there, in the fields, his love of the land was born. He went to work for Farmer's Weekly magazine, The Industry Bible, but soon discovered that what he was encouraged to write about and what was actually taking place on farms were very different. By the 1970s, the countryside was under attack, with hedges pulled out, wetlands drained, orchards grubbed up and woodlands felled, he recalls. Chemicals and later GM crops were playing havoc with traditional farming methods, and Harvey rebelled, writing articles warning against growth hormones in beef production, the loss of habitats, and the feeding of cereals to dairy crowds, which were making them sick and lame. By chance, he met actor Trevor Harrison, Eddie Grundy, at a party, and a whole new world was opened to him. Within a year, he was writing trial episodes for the archers, injecting them where he could with warning shots as to how, if mismanaged, current methods of farming could ruin the British countryside forever. Harvey, who lives on Exmoor, has never stopped singing that particular song. Now retired from script writing, he runs Pasture Promise, a forum for healthy food, sustainable agriculture, and a vibrant countryside. His memoir contains countless revelations about the making of the archers, all the characters, actors, storylines and behind-the-scenes dramas. But never very far away is his care and concern for the future of farming, of the land that feeds us, as he eloquently puts it.
Long ago, on a farm in Dorset, Harvey met a tractor driver called George, who proved to be one of his greatest inspirations for the archers. He could neither read nor write, and in his fifties he lived in a farm cottage with his elderly mother, Harvey remembers. The stories seemed to tumble out of him, liberally laced with irony and expletives. Many of his tales, at least the cleaned-up versions, were destined to get an airing years later in lines spoken by Jethro Larkin, Bill Inslee, Bert Fry and Joe Grundy. That's the archers for you. An everyday story about real country folk. The archers, of course, paint a mental picture with words. And words are the thing for Susie Dent with her dictionary corner in TV, TV's Countdown. But this week... Rather than talking about words and their origins, Margaret tells the story of Susie herself, taken from the Radio Times. It felt like we were always on our way to some freezing destinations on the south coast. I would be sitting in the back of my parents' car, only vaguely aware of my sister alongside me, as she lost herself in the pages of a Nancy Drew mystery. My focus was on a different world, as exciting to me as any tales of Crocodile Island or cities buried beneath the desert. It was as simple as it was seductive, and the gateway was always a French or German vocabulary book. Ever the reluctant conversationist on these endless journeys, I'd pretend to guess at I spy, while silently mouthing the German for dragonfly, Libelle, or the French for grapefruit, pomplemousse. I will never know quite why I wanted to learn these words. Certainly it wasn't for homework, I just know I needed them. It was the start of a lifelong passion. Some children collected stamps, I collected words. At my convent school, I continued the habit of eavesdropping that I'd developed as a small child, tuning into the conversation of nuns and fellow pupils as we approached the confessional or talked hopscotch patterns in the playground. And like everyone, I occasionally got things very wrong. I spent years singing a hymn called I Am the Lord of the Dance City, fondly imagining Jesus clapping along from his comfy sofa. At university, I began to notice the invisible threads that join our languages the family trees that reveal that not only are a mortgage and a mortuary linked, but that the word for a muscle in each language involves a tiny mouse, because a flex muscle looks so much like a mouse scurrying beneath the skin. But it was German that had me wrapped around its finger. Who could resist such beauties of fernware, the longing to be far away? or admire the usefulness of Verschlimbesserung, an attempted improvement that ends up making things worse. As the jottings in my notebooks proliferated, I had little sense where it would take me, but I did know I would always want to live among words, and that's how it panned out. Years later, working as a lexicographer, one rainy lunchtime, I casually pulled down a book from the shelf in my office. Walter Skeet's 1882 Etymological Dictionary of the English Language. 
It was from Skeet that I learned there is a crypt within apocryphal and that sarcasm and sarcophagus are brothers in arms. This was linguistic archaeology, digging up the foundations of words I loved gave them an extra dimension of magic. A career can feel like a long and slow-moving thing, yet the word itself is rooted in something far more energetic, beginning with the Roman carus, a wheeled vehicle. Career is the sibling of chariot. In English, it first described a knight's advance at full gallop in medieval jousting tournaments. In other words, a career is all about proceeding at pace with perhaps a few unexpected swerves thrown in. My own took a surprising turn when I ended up on Channel 4's wonderful countdown. There in Dictionary Corner it became my job to find long words and to read dictionaries at top speed. I'm lucky enough to do the same job of a sort in the comedy version 8 out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, where I'm in a constant struggle with the anarchic forces of Jimmy Carr. Despite Jimmy's best efforts to persuade the nation that my own writing is a form of euthanasia, look out for a sketch featuring him chopping up a copy of my book, my new book on air, I feel the pull of the written word just strong, strongly as I did on those car journeys all these years ago. In that new book, Interesting Stories About Curious Words, I have brought together thousands of my favourite joyfully eclectic stories about the language we use every day. In selecting them, I applied just one criteria, that every fact and every tale might elicit an ah, an of course, or even maybe a what. For a flavour of all three, take the story behind chance one's arm. Legend has it that the phrase rests in an attempt by the 15th century Earl of Kildare to end a long-running bloody quarrel between his family and the Ormonds. Taking refuge in St. Patrick's Cathedral, Dublin, he is said to have cut a hole in the door and stuck his arm through, offering the Ormonds the chance to take his hand in peace rather than chop it off. In admiration, and with not a small degree of relief, this they did, and the feud was ended. Curious minds will always need curious words. What's more, with the stories in my book to hand, it's my hope that you'll never be lost for words, however deeply you're lost within. Walt Disney is a worldwide favourite, with regular films of entertainment for all of the family. And in every one of those, since 2006, a little Lancashire village has been honoured. And that village goes by the name of Norton Disney. This article, written by Colin Patterson, the BBC Entertainment Correspondent, is read by Elaine. It is exactly 100 years since Walt Disney founded his famous film studio, which has made some of the world's best-loved movies. What's less well-known is the story of the founder's links to a tiny English village. A shooting star flies around Sleeping Beauty's castle to the soaring strings of When You Wish Upon a Star, as multicoloured fireworks explode and a perfect arc of light is formed in the sky before disappearing. 
That is the title sequence at the start of every Disney movie since 2006, meaning that whether it is the live-action Little Mermaid or the latest animated release Elemental, a tribute has just been paid to a Lincolnshire village with a population of 242. To find out how and why, I arranged to meet Disney historian Sebastien Durand at St Peter's Church in Norton Disney, Lincolnshire, a building that dates back to the 11th century. This is the oldest place in England where you can find a trace of Disney, of Walt Disney's history and his family tree, and even his coat of arms, the French Disney expert explains, while gazing up at Norman pillars and arches. This is also a church that Walt Disney himself visited on the 7th of July 1949. By that stage of his career, the company that Walt had founded with his brother Roy had just celebrated its 25th anniversary. Walt had already won 12 Oscars for films, including Fantasia and Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. That summer he was in the UK supervising the filming of a live-action Treasure Island when his, his daughters Diane and Sharon convinced him and his wife Lillian to spend a few days in Scotland. He agreed, but only if they could make a detour on the way. He had heard there was a village named after Disney, said the historian. He was intrigued as he only knew that his great-grandfather was Irish. He didn't know his history earlier than that. Accompanied by a photographer and with a cine camera to make a home movie, the Disneys descended on the tiny village. The Walt Disney Family Museum in San Francisco has allowed the BBC to show that rare footage as part of Disney's 100th anniversary celebrations. In the film, the family can be seen posing for photos by Norton Disney Road signs, walking down the main road and inspecting gravestones. He came with a convoy of cars and they stopped here to spend an afternoon in Norton Disney, says Durand. He was from rural village in America. He grew up in Missouri. So when he was here, he met with stockmen and could discuss with them about raising pigs, because that's what he did as a child. He connected with the people here and connected with his own history here. It was in St. Peter's Church that Walt Disney made his most significant discovery. The minister at the time, the Reverend R.K. Roper, explained to the animator how the De Isnes had come over from France to England with William the Conqueror after the Battle of Hastings in 1066 and had settled in the area. Over centuries, the name had changed to Disigny, then Disney, eventually becoming Disney around the 13th or 14th centuries. Walt also saw the rather grand 14th century tomb of Sir Walter de Isney, on which there was the family crest with three lions facing left, the symbol of Normandy. It clearly made an impression, because in 1965, 
for the 10th anniversary of the Disneyland theme park in California, Walt decided he wanted to add a coat of arms to Sleeping Beauty's castle. He was asked if there was a Disney crest. Ah, yes, he said. I remember. I saw it in Norton Disney in 1949 when I was in England filming Treasure Island. I went to that little town and saw the coat of arms. So they took photographs of it and reproduced it on the castle in Disney, California. And ever since then, it is on every Disney castle in all Disney parks. It even appears now at the beginning of every Disney movie. So since 2006, at the start of every Disney film, the three lions can be seen flying on a flag, well, three separate flags, at the top of Sleeping Beauty's castle a tribute to Norton Disney. There is still one resident who remembers the day Walt Disney visited. Hilda Kinnersley lives on Disney Court. She is 94, but was 20, and sitting in the St Vincent Arms pub, now called the Green Man, when her younger brother Jim arrived with the American visitors. I thought, who's that he's bringing in, remembers Hilda. And then I thought, oh, he's not a bad-looking man. They all come in with his daughters, and they were chatty, and they played a game of darts, because we were already playing darts when Walt came in. London Illustrated magazine dedicated two pages to the visit, saying, The man who has invaded the world's screens hopes to prove he has descended from a Norman invader of 1066. What proof is there that Walt Disney really is related to the Disneys of Norton Disney? You can never be totally sure, Duran says, because nobody can trace a direct history over a thousand years, except if he is from a royal family. We know that the Disney name began in France, continued in England, and went to Ireland and then to America. So obviously all people who share that name Disney, including Walt Disney, share that same history. The name comes from here. The exact possibility that Walt Disney is related to that is, I would say, 99%. One other rather interesting historical Disney link, which is kept in the Lincolnshire archives, can be seen in a charter signed in 1386. It shows that the name of the estate of the Disney family was Disneyland, albeit with an A. Durand cannot hide his glee, so the first appearance of the name Disneyland is not in California at the park, or at Disneyland Paris, but here in Lincolnshire, more than 600 years ago. When Walt visited in 1949, he presented the village with three prints of Disney characters, which he kept on him at all times in case of autograph hunters. For the country's 100th anniversary, rather more thought had gone into a gift from Disney to the village. Durand handed over a specially commissioned picture of Mickey and Minnie Mouse walking through Norton Disney, drawn by the Disney illustrator Kim Raymond. So thanks to a visit back in 1949, 
the person who holds the record for winning the most Oscars ever and a tiny Lincolnshire village will forever be linked a fairy tale worth of Disney himself. I'm sure Christmas was a great celebration back in the hurdy-gurdy days at the beginning of the 20th century, a time from which Alan now brings more reminiscences. On the corner of our street was a draper's shop where our man used to take us some time to buy our clothes using vouchers from a weekly club. It was a friendly shop where you could wander in and out of the various departments, going down a sort of ramp from one room to another, then up some narrow stairs to the millinery department, trying on hats with no interference from the assistants, and we all loved going into the shop. It had windows and entrances in both Jordan Well and Much Park Street. On the other corner was an undertaker's shop, displaying numerous artificial wreaths encased in domed glass covers with appropriate inscriptions inside engraved on a white celluloid strip. Just around the corner was a chemist's shop, which had a notice displayed in the window, Teeth Extracted Sixpence. As Grace was always crying with a toothache and keeping us awake at night, Ma'am decided she had got to have the tooth out. As there were no anaesthetics given for teeth extraction then, at least not for the likes of us, it was a very painful affair, and all sorts of remedies, or so-called remedies, were used to avoid having the tooth out. I can remember Ma'am dragging poor Grace into the shop and saying to the old man behind the counter, "'We want a tooth taken out, please.' He was an old man with a long white beard and steel-rimmed spectacles halfway down his nose. When he had finished serving his customer, he shuffled into a room at the back of the shop, beckoned us to follow, muttering to Grace, who was whimpering, Sit down, open your mouth, which one is it? All in one breath. Man pointed to the troublesome tooth, and he produced some pincers from his pocket at the back of his coat. At this point, I dashed out of the shop and stood further along the street, waiting for Grace to yell. And yell she did. I thought he was pulling her head off. We were a long time before we dared to go into that shop again, and when we had to go by, we fairly ran by. The chemist shops in those days had three large bottles in the window, with coloured water in them, red, blue and green. The bottles had pointed glass stoppers, there was no other window display, and you just dashed in and out again as quickly as possible. Sometimes Ma'am used to take us to see other Gran, her mother, who lived in a little house at the bottom of Hilltop, which was a little cobbled lane going off Priory Row, where Earl Leofric and Lady Godiva once lived. There was also a blue-coat charity school for girls there, which opened in 1714 and was rebuilt on the same site in 1856. This gran was a very nice kind old lady, so different from our other gran. She had rosy sunken cheeks, no teeth, and snow-white hair. She had the same blue eyes as our ma'am, which twinkled like little stars when she laughed. She always wore a tight-fitting black bodice, well, nearly green, as it was very shabby, the collar fastening high in her neck, nearly reaching her ears. She was very poor, like the rest of us, 
Her husband, our grandpa, had been dead for a number of years, having died of consumption, and she had been left with seven children to bring up somehow. She had to go washing and charring. She was always changing houses because of the rent. If she saw a house a shilling cheaper, she would get one of her sons, now all married, to hire a handcart to move her goods and chattels. There were five sons, a drunken lot, our ma'am, and Aunt Jenny. Poor Aunt Jenny was always crying. She had been jilted when she was very young, and deeply in love, and never got over it. Although now married, she was very quiet and unhappy. How Gran lived was a mystery, as what money the sons earned had to go to their own families. They would sometimes drop her a shilling every now and again, if they hadn't all gone on beer. We used to like visiting her, as she was so cheerful, and though she was so poor, there was always a good fire, banked up with slack, filling the room up with smoke. When she saw us coming, she would give it a good poke, leave the poker in, and making more smoke, and then after a minute or two, it would burst into flames. Then she would put on the old black kettle for a cup of tea. She would put the cups without saucers on a tin tray, ready for the table. In the corner by the smoky fire sat a very old man, in an upright wooden armchair. He had a long grubby beard, which to our amusement went up and down when he ate and drank his tea. He had no teeth, so when he sucked in his tea, his moustache was drawn in with it. His legs were covered by a piece of old grey blanket. He must have been paralysed as he never moved and never seemed to speak to anybody. He was always referred to as Uncle Ned. What relation he was to Gran, we never knew, but perhaps he was the answer to the mystery of how she lived. He may have been the lodger. Continuing our Christmas theme, Elaine now reads A Visit from Santa Claus by Clement Mark Clark Moore. The guardian saint of little children is St. Nicholas, who is remembered on December the 6th. The story behind why he is the guardian saint of little children is a tad on the grisly, gruesome side. So we won't hear about that now. We'll hear about the St. Nicholas that we all know as Father Christmas. Picture the scene. A child in bed a few years back with a fireplace in the bedroom. Down the chimney St. Nicholas came with a bound. He was dressed all in fur from his head to his foot, and his clothes were all tarnished with ashes and soot. A bundle of toys he had flung on his back, and he looked like a peddler just opening his pack. His eyes, how they twinkled, his dimples, how merry. His cheeks were like roses, his nose like a cherry. His droll little mouth was drawn up like a bow, and the beard on his chin was as white as the snow. The stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth, and the smoke it encircled his head like a wreath. He had a broad face and a little round belly that shook when he laughed like a bowl full of jelly. He was chubby and plump, a right jolly old elf, and I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. A wink of his eye and a twist of his head soon gave me to know I had nothing to dread. He spoke not a word, but went straight to his work, 
and filled all the stockings, then turned with a jerk, and laying his finger aside of his nose, and giving a nod, up the chimney he rose. He sprang to his sleigh, to his team gave a whistle, and away they all flew like the down of a thistle. But I heard him exclaim, ere he drove out of sight, Happy Christmas to all, and to all a good night. Dave was intrigued to hear that Birmingham was holding a Frankfurt Christmas market, so went along to find out more before coming back to Coventry's Christmas attraction of the Big Wheel. Well, a big welcome to the Frankfurt Christmas Market, Birmingham, and here we are with Graham. So what do you think of it? It's really good, yeah. i got got uh, singing, singing uh, Rudolph on top of a pub, yeah. There's uh, alcoholic um, chocolate drinks you can have, uh, like different names, like ladies' dreams, men's dreams, Santa's dreams. It contain like Bailey's, Rum, uh, Amoroso. Yeah, German beer, yeah, okay. Right. So what else we got in the German Christmas market? There's an area where you can either drink or, um, or eat, and you can see the, the uh, boozy in the jacuzzi. Yeah, the boozy in the jacuzzi. And we're near the town hall, aren't we? Yeah, yeah it's outside the town hall, well, yeah. And there's a big massive um, carousel. Oh, we love carousels. Yeah. And there's a windmill as well. There's also with... Uh, it's a Bradford sausage you can get. Right, with a chocolate stall now. Yeah, they can get chocolate on the skewers, like bananas, grapes, bana- uh, apple, uh, white or uh, dark chocolate. Okay, we have the German finger, and it's a big, huge cabin with Father Christmas on everybody. Easy to describe it. That's Father Christmas with two carol fingers. Father Christmas with Rudolph and Father Christmas is on the moon. To Alana that I've been dancing with uh, to the German singer. Wonderful. So, uh, do you like the Christmas market? I do. It's absolutely amazing. It's uh, nice and friendly, big, beautiful. Yeah, I understand you're a bit of a connoisseur of German markets. I am. I am, yeah. I've been to Berlin. I've been, I've been to quite a few now in Europe. Yeah. Now, how does Birmingham uh, German market compare with other markets? Um, it's a bit more friendly, to be fair. <laughs> um, there's a lot of little knickknacks and stuff that you can buy. Um, the beer's nice. <laughs> okay. Well, that's good enough. Thank you very much, Alana. Merry Christmas, Hello there, I'm speaking to one of the singers that's been entertaining us and I've been dancing to. Thank you very much. So what's your name? My name is Manuel. And whereabouts do you, are you from? I'm from uh, Germany, from Stuttgart. Oh, Stuttgart. So, so what's the, the Christmas like there in uh, Stuttgart? Do they have uh, big German markets there? Yeah, the town has also a big market, but I like it here uh, more than in Germany because here it's more traditional with the, with the things on the market. Yeah, I like it here more, yeah. <laughs> so are you likely to be going home for uh, Christmas or staying here? 
I go home at 24, it's the flight back. <laughs> is it? Yeah. In the morning, yeah, I have to be at home at the by the family. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> yeah. Tara, uh, have you enjoyed being in Birmingham? Yeah, I enjoy it every year. Yeah. I'm here a lot of years, I think seven, eight years. So I'm yes. here, yeah. Yeah. You and your fellow singer, are you from the same place in Germany? Same place, six kilometers. Distance, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're kind of neighbours almost. Yeah, yeah. yeah thank <laughs> kind <you>. of neighbours. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thank you very much for talking to us. And then ha have a nice Christmas. Okay, we've just been around the German Christmas market and we've uh, seen something else now. Yes, uh, chocolate marshmallows, different flavours, rum and raisin, white chocolate, milk of candy nuts, yeah. different flavours like Baileys, orange, strawberry. The kind of thing we're eating now. Okay. Right, so, so what have we got here, Gwen? I've got a uh, bar, but it's got like, um, like a sort of carousel. Again, and ran like figures like Santa Claus, an angel, um, a soldier. Yeah, excellent, yes. And underneath, there's the bar. Wonderful. Right, so where are we now, Graham? Oh, yeah, Birmingham Cathedral. There's a big, massive house of skelter, and underneath, there's a bar. Well, I'm going up the house of skelter. How old is the house of skelter? Uh we go back a few years? Yeah. I'm not hundred percent I only help out occasionally. Yeah. I do I've got I've got a full time job, but just help out occasionally. Are you doing this part time? Yeah, I do security at the moment. Yes. What advice you got? Just sit there and you sit there. Just go down, go with the flow. You go with the flow. Yeah. Well, okay. Okay, see ya. Thanks. See ya, have a good one. Thank you. Wow, Jesus. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go, down, and we're giving a bit of a view of the uh, cathedral there. And uh, down we go. Oh, wow. And nearly landing. And here we go. And we bottom. Ah! Thank you very much. I enjoyed that. Thank you very much indeed. Hi, my darling. The German Christmas market spreads all over the city centre, doesn't it? Gets all the way to the uh, ballroom, yeah. Wow. So what have we got in front of us? Big massive gate saying Birmingham's Frankfurt Christmas market. Oh, we've moved to Coventry now, and Graham and I are on the big wheel in the middle of Broadgate. And we're getting higher and higher. On the right-hand side, this Coventry precinct with a criss-cross of lights and I can see the illuminated rings of fountains with coloured lights leaping and dancing. I can see the lower precinct all the way, all the way down. Yeah. There's a Christmas tree in Broadgate below and down below on the right hand side of Primark, the top of Trinity Street, I can see the Coventry Cross with its illuminated inside with a statue of Henry VI inside it. And all around uh, the centre of Broadgate are the stalls, the illuminated stalls from the Coventry Christmas Market. Well, have you had a nice day, Graham? Yeah, have a good day, yeah. <laughs>
Well, it's been fantastic, thanks to you. And that's all from uh, Birmingham, Frankfurt, German Christmas Market, and uh, bye-bye now from Coventry Christmas Market and the Big Wheel. Bye. Bye. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. With only one more Outlook programme before our two-week break, next week we'll be full of Christmas features, and hopefully your special messages in postbag. But for now, that brings us to the end of this edition of Outlook. So from all the team and me, Peter Walters, it's goodbye till next time.